1: Difficult to keep
2: the line between the past and the present. you
1: believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us.
3: Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts in a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with... Keith Upps. And... Genevieve Kosky. Tasha Robinson is out sick this week. Feel better soon, Tasha. This is really, honestly, this podcast in the, in the winter is just kind of a, an audio record of uh, the fact that everyone gets ill.
0: I'm the only one who hasn't been sick yet. I know, I know. And
3: I've, I've had so many wonderful contagious diseases. Um, anyway, uh, here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we're looking at two documentaries that go behind the scenes of two Democratic campaigns and follow the incredible twists and turns in the lead up to Election Day, Genevieve Tell the nice people about this week's pairing.
0: This week, we're going to tell you a story about the rise and fall of Clintonism in America. D.A. Pennebaker and Chris Hedges' 1993 documentary, The War Room, follows the presidential campaign of an exciting young upstart from Arkansas named William Jefferson Clinton. As he tries to win the Democratic primary and unseat President George Herbert Walker Bush after 12 years of Republican rule. Josh Kriegman and Elise Steinberg's documentary Weiner from last year follows disgraced Congressman Anthony Weiner's failed comeback bid to run for mayor of New York City in 2013. In a way, Clinton's campaign paved the way for Weiner's. Just as Clinton was able to convince the public to look past his marital infidelities, Weiner was hoping his sexting scandal could be forgiven. The parallels are even stronger when you consider the fact that Weiner's wife, Huma Abedin, was one of Hillary Clinton's closest aides. But in Weiner's case, reality did not follow the same script.
3: No, it did not. In fact, the blast radius of Anthony Weiner's campaign was so immense that it wound up engulfing Hillary Clinton's presidential ambitions. In the final days of the 2016 election, when it looked like Clinton was cruising to victory over Donald Trump, FBI Director James Comey wrote a letter warning about the possibility of classified emails finding their way onto Weiner's laptop. She lost the election and blamed Comey, and Weiner the documentary took on a whole new meaning. But that's the end of our story. After the break, we'll start at the beginning back when we still believe in a place called hope.
1: Somebody who's been through a lot of tough elections, James Carville, is known as the Raging Cajun in the business. Let me tell you what's at stake in this election. Just about George Bush and the whole sleazy little cabal of them. You're going to get tax breaks for the wealthy, you're going to get a guy that doesn't know what a grocery store scanner is. I'm getting sick and tired. I am every single night hearing one of these carping little liberal Democrats jumping all over my you-know-you-know-what. I'm George Stephanopoulos. I'm director of communications. Bush was on the defensive.
0: Another good night for Bill
1: Clinton. Three debates, three wins. I guarantee you that if you do this, you'll never work in democratic politics again. If we cannot believe anything he has said about his past, how can we believe anything he's saying about the future? Well, I think Marymount's got a good career in fiction writing when this is over. I'm lost. I don't know where I'm supposed to go next. Turn parole off. I don't want to look at it. How are you? Nice to see you. Stay focused. Talk about things that matter to people. We love Hillary's new patriotism. It's the economy, stupid. Speak from your heart tonight. I mean, that's all that matters. Read my lips. It's the most famous broken promise in the the history of American
3: American. politics. We will
1: win.
3: The Reagan Revolution was real. By the time the 1991 presidential election rolled around, Republicans had controlled the executive branch for three straight terms, two under Ronald Reagan, one under George H.W. Bush. For Democrats, the path to victory was unclear. When you're out of power for that long, it's hard to draw a winning electoral map even when the incumbent has shown some vulnerabilities. And in Bill Clinton, you had a problematic candidate, to say the least. Though a former Arkansas governor, he was largely unknown and untested on the national stage. His reputation as a womanizer threatened to alienate both female voters and moral majority types, and there was no guarantee that a moderate Southern governor was the right answer for energizing the Democratic Party and controlling the executive branch for the first time since Jimmy Carter. The War Room would be a fascinating documentary even if the Clinton campaign stalled out in New Hampshire. But D.A. Pennebaker and Chris Hedges wound up bearing witness to history and brought us inside an operation that would change the way campaigns were won. Unlike Weiner, we don't see much of the candidate himself. Instead, the war room made stars out of two charismatic political professionals. Lead strategist James Carville, a.k.a. the and Cajun, who brought a bare-knuckled approach to the job that effectively underlined the weaknesses of Clinton's primary opponents and President Bush. And handsome bastard George Stephanopoulos, who would go on to become the director of communications and a senior advisor to the Clinton White House before moving on to a career in journalism. The War Room is about Carville, Stephanopoulos, and others sincerely advocating for a candidate they felt would lead the country in a positive direction, but it's also about consultancy as a business. Years later, we wouldn't necessarily view James Carville and George Stephanopoulos as idealists, but more as opportunists with their own set of ambitions. With the War Room, Pennebaker and Hedges didn't have special access to Clinton, and they deliberately avoid the news clips or title cards that might tell the larger story of the campaign as it unfolded. It's a great work of direct cinema, the -the fly-on-the-wall style mastered by directors like Frederick Wiseman, the Maisels brothers, and Pennebaker himself. By camping out behind the scenes, Pennebaker and Hedges patiently collect the footage they need to tell a story in specific moments, from Carville passionately rallying the troops to haggling sessions over 30-second ads, to potential attack lines over campaign materials manufactured overseas. And oh, those magnificent, long-sleeved, multicolored collared shirts of Carville's. How have those not come back in style? We'll address that important question and many more after the break.
1: Somebody who's been through a lot of tough elections... Is uh, James Carville, who's known as the Raisin Cajun in the business. And uh, we'd like him to say a couple of words to you. Uh, we have a tough fight coming right down the stretch. It's going to come out that Roger Ailes is behind a lot of this stuff before the election that you've been seeing about Governor Clinton. Okay? Ailes. Ooh. It is, And, of course, Bush and, and, and Georgette Mossberg and everything else. Let me tell you what's at stake in this election. Every time that somebody comes along that's got some ideas, a Democrat comes along, the Republicans come up here, and they ambush him. Remember Muskie? Okay? That is standard procedure. And here comes Clinton. He comes to New Hampshire. People here hurting. They want hope. They want somebody with vision. He gives it to them. So what do Republicans do? They get together with their wedge issues and they knock it off. If they succeed this time, it's going to be every time. You are never going to get a presidential candidate. Okay? You're never going to get somebody to come up here and run for president that's served 11 years as governor, has got any kind of experience. Okay? And every time somebody comes up, they're going to do it. If we win this, then you have knocked this shit back forever.
3: Okay. So, did any of you see the War Room back in 1993, or just in the 90s in general? And you know, what was your perspective on the film then and now?
2: I did not. In fact, I just saw it for the first time for this. I'm, oh, like, wow! Yeah, really? I know I'm, I'm,
3: I'm, I know, I'm bad, uh, but I do
2: remember. You're not bad. I remember Keith. when it came out, though. I remember. I remember it like, "This is this is like nothing you've ever seen before." Mm-hmm. Just, we didn't we didn't understand how politics worked until we saw this movie. It was sort of the reaction I, I remember from from the reviews at the time.
0: Yeah. Well. I was 10 when it (laughs) came out. So no, I did not see it in 93. But I did see it in the 90s in high school, actually, in a civics class. Uh, (laughs) In in hindsight, I'm very confused as to why the teacher thought it would be a good thing for us to watch, especially considering the uh, Monica Lewinsky scandal had happened like maybe a year or two Hmm. earlier. So it it seems like a very pointed (laughs) thing to have a bunch of high schoolers watch this movie. But uh, that's neither here nor there. But honestly, I don't. Really remember my impressions of it back then because I don't know I was a junior in high school and didn't really care about this, this is, movie. This boring. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like why? Aren't, <laughs> <laughs> why aren't they doing anything? Um, no, but rewatching it for this in the current political climate was mm. a enlightening experience to say the least and also like being semi-familiar with James Carville and George Stephanopoulos the figures they've become mm-hmm. after this movie that was also enlightening to kind of go back and see them in their nascent stages so to speak but yeah I can't really say that my thoughts on the movie have evolved because I don't remember what my initial thoughts on the movie were but it yeah. was uh, it was something to watch at this time
3: yeah it uh, really was it, I guess I then would be the lone war room obsessive <laughs> (laughs) here. Um, This election was the first presidential election that I voted in and that I participated in. I was in college and I have a very strong memory of, this is the University of Georgia and Believe it or not, at the time Georgia was very much in play and was a swing state, and it was a state that Bill Clinton won. And I remember Al Gore coming to campus and giving that speech, That, that up-down speech, he giving he the up-down <laughs> speech, and everybody, everybody was saying, "I was out there too, saying up and down, and up and down, <laughs> and that whole bit about." You know, if you wake up in the morning and you're all cranky and it's raining and you look at the headline and it's four more years, that whole bit, like <laughs> that canned stump speech, which is quite effective, I remember that very strongly. And I remember really going all the way with this thing. And not only did I see it you know, a couple of times, I read James Carville and Mary Madeline's stupid book that they wrote <laughs> together about being this wacky couple that one of whom serves republicans the other one's a democrat but they get along etc and um i think that was actually kind of a turning point in my Thinking about politics, I was going to ask you because I, when I saw the War Room, it was like James Carville is amazing. This is this guy is a genius. He energizes this campaign. He loves his troops. You know, there's a, he's salty. He's like a really colorful figure. And I still believe when you watch the film, I mean that that impression comes across strongly. But then when I read that book, it was like okay. The reason why this relationship works is because they're political professionals.
0: They're both mercenaries. (laughs) Right, exactly.
3: They're mercenaries. And if you go even further than that and see a documentary called our brand is crisis which is when carville and his his consultancy business got involved in um, an election that was with much more unsavory results than bill clinton beating george hw bush then you think okay this is how how it really is this isn't necessarily an idealist or maybe uh, yeah, i mean i guess with the war room it's a complicated situation where it's somebody who is you look at james carville and maybe you get a little bit of both you know i mean i think he does sincerely believe in this candidate and how the country is going to change potentially under bill clinton but there is that that mercenary aspect that that i don't know if it comes through in the film itself but i think outside of the film and and over the years it really it's unavoidable
0: see that that, that's interesting to me because like can can you point to uh, a place in the war room where you see that uh sincere belief in the policies that Clinton stands for because when I viewed it, like mm-hmm. I, I saw Carvel as kind of pure mercenary. Really? Yeah. Like
3: you, you didn't it, think that that speech that he gives about how there's nothing more precious that a person can give them their labor uh, and he starts crying and he's talking and he's talking because of the things that you've done. People are going to get better health care. People are going to get yada, yada, yes. yada. And I, I thought like that was a, that's a very inspiring speech. And I think if you're in that room and you've been, it, which again, I think this film is so evocative I and mean, you can practically smell, you know, the stale <laughs> pizza in that room. Mm-hmm. You know, I think you can see why these these people have uh, volunteers and, and campaign professionals have given so much of their energy to this to this guy
0: sure sure i mean that that closing speech is fair point (laughs) i I, I, I did gloss over that but yes like up until that point i see him as a politics as competition figure Mm. and like his the way he digs down into the minutiae of the campaign feels less about hammering out the specific positions on this policy than hammering out the optics and like for coming from him i really see only concern with how things look. And that's his job. That's sure. what a campaign strategist mm. does. And I I didn't see anything beyond that until that final speech, which I guess for me was kind of colored by everything that came before as almost a performance, you know, for his troops that did do a lot of work, and mm-hmm. for for me, it seems like Carville is more in it for the experience of managing a, a winning campaign. Mm-hmm. Like he wants to win, and he appreciates all the people on the staff who helped him win. And I feel that the what he's saying about you know people getting healthcare and all that is just kind of an extension of the line he's been towing for the entire movie. Wow. You know, the points that he has just grown accustomed to making as part of this right so, you, so it's you know. a
3: different kind of messaging he's got he's got the, the messaging that he's doing for the for the public that he's trying to hone and uh, to, to get his candidate elected and you think that he, he even in that moment he is he is still messaging but he's tailoring that yeah. message to his people who, yes. who might have a different motive for for supporting that's an interesting point
0: What about you keith what what's your take on carville
2: i think he's a consummate professional and it seems like i, I want to think in this case or, or he he's not insincere. I think he does believe in these causes. I, I can also see him as someone who, if the Clinton campaign had, had sputtered out and Songhus had taken off, he could easily have tra- transferred his skills over there and be saying that the uh, drawing on the same skills for to, to elect him, uh, you know, much like your Kellyanne Conway would, would switch from from Cruz to, to Trump or whatever.
3: Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much there to be blamed really for that i mean it's you good know, to stay
2: employed you know right i mean uh,
3: you know i mean going from one you know particularly if you're if you're a democratic operative you're gonna go you are gonna go from one democrat to the other and and i, I think there's been a consistency and throughout carville's career of embracing a certain brand of kind of a center-left candidate i don't think he's the type that you're gonna see on a bernie sanders campaign for example yeah. that's not really where his beliefs are so so i think those beliefs are present but uh, but he's a, he's a slippery character and i mean it, he definitely gives this film its center of gravity i mean it, i mean he is the person that you're really looking at you know except- and the charge of
2: any scene i mean the, appro- right. the approach mm-hmm. to take can, can be you know it is very much fly on the wall so you better have to fly to something interesting
3: yeah <laughs> and I, I think there's fascinating things too about well, I think we can just get into the filmmaking itself, but the sorts of things that get focused on, the little, the details about campaign decisions that are made. There's a pretty famous scene, well, a couple of pretty big scenes, but, but one where they're just going over this ad over the phone. No, right? sir. <laughs> no, sir. <laughs> no, sir. No, sir. Or, or, or uh-uh. <laughs>
0: It's so great.
3: Oh, God. If one of us could do just like great Cajun accent, uh, maybe Tasha would have been good for it if yeah. she were sick. But it's like, no, sir. No, sir. <laughs> um, but, uh, but just it being able to think, how are we going to take in this 30-second ad? How are we just going to be able to maximize that impact and, and also you know the demands that are being made that are just impossible on the person who's having to cut this commercial together yeah, that it's like,
0: disembodied voice on the other on the other line of the phone it's just like you can <laughs> i can like it's so much richer like having to picture what is going across her face yeah. as she is like trying to like maintain her composure yeah. on this but that phone adds call.
3: time <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't. Know. We need to lose things, not add things.
0: Man,
1: here's a way to say maybe a half a second or a second. Yeah. Under the, the second announcer, change the sentence to: Now he wants you to believe what he says about Bill Clinton. Actually, what I changed it to is: No, now he's asking you to believe his attacks against Bill Clinton. Fine. Yeah. Either way, that's The better. other thing
3: we could do, um,
1: Mandy, yeah. maybe we could say: uh, where we say no, Mr. President, this time I'm going to read the facts. Yeah. Maybe we just say no. This time I'm going to read the facts. Better. Yeah. No, sir. Maybe that's a Southern thing, but I'll, no, sir. No, no, sir. Well,
0: no, nice sir. Say, but I either. just think it's I very said, no, important. Yeah, I sir. think it's very important.
1: We get at the end. We get that. Read my lips. I know that that will drive them, the voters, to it just—it's the most fa- famous broken what promise in the commercial? history of American politics. I'm just—I'm just telling you that. Kind of the way it's set up to be factual and, mm-hmm. you know, big fact. Well, what, vi- right. well, what yeah. visual were you thinking of with the fact? Well, I think a just big, the way. You know, the, the of a fact sign. And then, okay, let's do that. But let's just get this spot produced. Hey, I'm, I'm sitting in a studio. I'm okay. doing it. And,
3: and, then, and then just the bit of just trying to figure out what could possibly be scandalous. About George H W Bush. I mean, this is not a George H W Bush is not a target-rich environment like a Donald Trump. Yeah. He was he's a pretty boring guy. It's so, like the
0: the best they could come up with is that he's a politician. Yeah, like, you know, like that's he's uh, a politician
3: and he and he he makes campaign materials in Brazil. Yeah, like can you imagine getting <laughs> upset about that? that uh, like trying that to scene, figure out how to make that upsetting.
0: Yeah, that that scene is. Hilarious, and and probably one of the most memorable Carvel moments for me. Just like watching his excitement over something that he perceives as like a potential nail in the coffin (laughs) scandal that is really nothing. Like, no, and and like most of the people around him seem to be like, uh, okay, dude. (laughs) You you know, you remember uh, the great
2: Brazil t shirt manufacturing (laughs) scandal, or banner (laughs) manufacturing scandal of '92, right? I mean, it was, it was, it was rough. Uh, Oh
3: my god.
0: And then, meanwhile, he's managing this candidate that is just rife with scandal mm-hmm. you know yeah. it, it is
2: remarkable you know you i mean obviously we've known the outcome going yeah. into this movie but it is remarkable that they win you know it is it yeah. is it is an underdog story, and it is kind of strange in in, in the end that I think Perot coming along probably helped but it the Clinton but won. less so
3: less so when you consider the present i mean less so when you consider you know that we just elected a a sex criminal to the <laughs> to the presidency i mean yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's a, there's a awful lot of forgiveness of these sorts of things i mean i guess we'll Do get into this desire for
2: change after we'll having the same thing for a long time what's this desire for change after having the same thing well, yeah, for a exactly, long time well exactly Ch- exactly change is
3: change is strong i mean i think it's hard to you know i mean 12 years is a very long time and i don't think there was a sense that that bush was uh doing anything particularly uh exciting or special Mm -hmm. in his his time in office but i think we can get into that a little bit more with wiener too into what sort of scandals stick and what sort of scandals don't and what is important in public life and and what in private life and those the way those two things kind of combine but uh but i i wanted to get into the style of this film you know the war room was shot in 16 millimeter, you know, uh, unlike today where you would have hundreds of hours of digital video to, to, to go through, there had to have been choices that were made on the part of Pennebaker and Hedges uh, as to when to keep the camera going and when not to. I was just curious what, what you think of the style of the film.
0: Well, I mean, I think the kind of the strategy for, you know, working around the restrictions of 60 millimeter are like kind of right there in the title, like the war room, like most of their filming is confined to actual like campaign headquarters. There's a lot during actual meetings. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's just like kind of strategic planning of being there when people are going to be saying things aloud and like, in like giving voice to opinions and ideas that they may not under kind of more out-in-the-world circumstances. You know, like other other uh, documentaries may take the talking head approach to get that kind of information across. But by, you know, using these uh, staff meetings as kind of a organizing principle for the film, you're able to kind of get a lot of basic information across that way. Kind of the <laughs> the outcome of that is that, it is not a particularly exciting film to look at in terms of visually stimulating. Like it's a very just kind of bland. And it suffers from, yeah, yeah. from the
2: sort of the, the tan and gray office aesthetic of the early 90s yeah, too. Yeah,
0: yeah, which I mean, it's not a, a mark against it. You know, like not every film has to be bursting with color and chiaroscuro, but it's part of the visual quality of this movie that it has this very kind of sedate palette uh, excluding of course Carvel shirts <laughs> <laughs> yeah right they
3: give you that color pop that yeah. you need one of the things i think is so clever about the film i mean and you're right i think there is there was a lot of strategy in terms of what is the perspective you know what what's important when do we roll the cameras it, i think there was a lot of pretty important planning as far as that is concerned and i think that we can also think of the war room as you know a supplement to the election that we already know you know mm-hmm. these are if you're watching this film in 1993 You you certainly know about that. Bill Clinton won won the primary and won the presidency, and and there's there's some information that you can kind of skip. But I also think the film is super clever at getting across information in a visual way um, without having to use titles. I mean the one one of my favorite moments in the film is when Bill Clinton wins the New York primary. The way that is conveyed is a shot of Times Square, um, and you see you know the that typical shot of Times Square with all the Billboards going uh, vertical, and then off to the side of the screen, you can see just a, a scroll saying "Bill Clinton wins New mm, York yeah. primary." I thought, like, like that is a great shot and, and a really interesting way to get that information across. You know, it's just it's unconventional. So there's there was just such a subtle artistry to that.
2: Yeah, I, I do. I did feel like because I, I am a few years removed from from it, I, I felt a little adrift at times in terms of where we were in the course mm-hmm. of the campaign. If I just you know, live through the 92 election, I, I feel less that less. But I think what you lose in, in that you, you gain. And overall, I really like the Pittmaker hegemony style. I, I like the sort of hang out and watch uh, uh, approach. I think you get things on camera, you would not get any other way. And, and uh, I wouldn't necessarily trade that. But like, I, I toward the end of the film it's like, Oh, wait, we're at election night? Yeah, you know, it just kind of crept up on me.
0: Yeah, I, I kind of had the same thought listening to you, you talk, Scott, because obviously, that campaign was a a pivotal moment for for you as kind of a political junkie and a a film person someone who does not have very strong memories of that campaign because again i was like nine nine or ten it was a little difficult to keep the thread of like when perot got in the race and then he got out and then he got back in and but that also adds an element of not surprise exactly but discovery like i had no idea that the jennifer flowers thing happened that early in the campaign like Mm -hmm. you know like i mean it it, in my mind it's just kind of like melded into the cloud of sex scandals uh, (laughs) surrounding bill clinton and the cultural (laughs) imagination and i didn't really remember any of the details of that so when that happened so early i was like whoa Whoa! Like it's kind of amazing to realize that he overcame something that happened that early. Yeah, on.
3: and that would come back later and during yeah. one of the one of his wife's <laughs> presidential debates. Oh, oh that's oh right! Yeah. Oh, yeah she oh my came god! Oh my god! I've already
0: blocked that out. Yeah, yeah that no, was a low,
3: low point. The, a low point among low, low points. Point. Oh, come
0: on. <laughs> <laughs> you
3: can't call that a low point. There's so many low uh, points.
0: Yeah, but, but
2: that sort of convention of, of accusers and press just, conference again yeah. backstage. Oh that was bad.
0: Okay, so this is something I want to get into because like we've we've all kind of like made noises both on mic and off about how like this is a kind of a difficult watch uh, uh, uh now. And like do you guys I mean obviously mudslinging existed before this campaign mm-hmm. and, and this movie, but do you guys see this movie is like a starting point or a a seed for where we are now or, or the campaign that we just came out of the only
3: real seed i see is is that it was the birth of the democratic machine the democrats were in in legitimate disarray at that point in history and and this campaign showed that the democrats could be winners and that they had a people they had your carvilles and stephanopoulos they also have have uh, stan greenberg who who's a famous pollster shows up in the movie there are there are political professionals who who service in this movie uh maybe sometimes briefly in in some some at the, at the center who figured out how to make winners out of democrats figured out how to campaign against republicans which which may be involved a little bit uh you know, a little bit more of a muscular campaign, right. if you want to put it in a euphemistic way.
2: Campaigns have always been ugly, but but I do think there's a direct line between the way the Clinton scandal is played out in tabloids and and the election of Donald Trump. I mean, I, th- I think mm-hmm. you know, and and I and I don't think that uh, the Lewinsky scandal just just uh, heightened that. I don't think that did anyone any favors. I think I think I'm going to sound like an old. Fuddy-duddy here, but I think it opened up um, what was acceptable to talk about when we talk about politics mm-hmm. um, and uh, in a way that was uh, has been uh, detrimental um, to, yeah. uh, to to the whole election process.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm just kind of thinking of the... Um, kind of the salivating over scandal that you see in the mm. in this movie on from both campaigns, but going back to what you were saying, Scott, about this kind of being the birth of the political machine, like depending on your viewpoint, and I think it 's pretty clear what all of our viewpoint is on the current election, like that machine failed yeah. this this time out, it did. and you know it's really I think easy to view this movie as kind of a an insight into how the Democratic Party like got on track, but maybe a track that ended up going back off track. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. Um I, I I don't know like it, well, yeah
2: something has to do with the Clintons with the, yeah. the inherent like the charisma and strong ideas but also the the flaws and the way they turn people off as much as they excite people it, it, yeah it's all kind of there.
3: Here's the thing with Clintonism that I think ends up being a problem is is this idea I guess of triangulation right of just of trying to figure out what the formula is going to be and where you have to be positioned between left and right. Mm-hmm. In order to win like in order to find that winning coalition and the idea with bill clinton and hillary clinton what what their campaigns had in common was like we are going to try to seize that vote in the middle Mm -hmm. and not and if that means either taking you know taking the base for granted or 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 whatever then that they're going to do that and i think i think it was a little bit of a thing where the democrats were so much in the wilderness when bill clinton was elected that i think the i think People were were excited. I mean, I I certainly remember being a college student and being very excited about Bill Clinton's candidacy in a way that I don't think uh, college students of today were terribly excited about Hillary Clinton's candidacy. I
2: remember thinking, buying into this idea that they could just get a Democrat in the White House, everything would be fine. You know, everything would be so much better, you know, and that was not – that quickly became apparent that it was not going to be the case. Well,
3: I mean, you know. It was. I mean, it was better, but it wasn't. Oh, yeah. It wasn't perfect. Uh, but I think that I think that formula. It's not a one size fits all thing. You know, you can't really run one campaign and have one strategy and expect the strategy that paid off in nineteen ninety two to pay off in, in two thousand sixteen.
0: Right. Well, and politics is reactive. It's it's responding to what has happened in the in the recent past, and what has happened in the recent past is always changing. So you know, a strategy from twenty years ago more than 20 years ago is not going to necessarily play the same way in the current climate that has been affected by that strategy from low those many years ago.
3: And and I think there's a sense with the Clintons too of, of a lack of core beliefs. I mean, there's a, there's a malleability to, to their thinking uh, which, which is politically helpful in that they can evolve in again, triangulate to whatever the current political thinking is and, and adjust to that. But I, I think it it lacks that of just what do you stand you know the question of what do you stand for what are your values, um, maybe that doesn't come across quite as as clearly. Well, but
2: I think people were a little wearier of it twenty four years later twenty four years after first encountering it this, mm-hmm. you know, this during this last election yeah. you know I, I think um, the Clintons were relatively new and now. I don't want to relitigate this last election, I guess, but at the same time, it's like, you know, there is an old story at this point, and I think there is sort of sort of a, a, a um, reluctance to to go back to that.
3: So what we're saying is Bernie would have won. <laughs> no, well, I know. You know I, just, well, I just, I just, that you gotta say, you gotta uh, say that. Um, um, I'm trying to think, O'Malley would have won. <laughs> for, yeah, <laughs> I don't know about that. So let's get getting back to the war room itself, everyone. Uh, instead of just drifting off into the the sad death of Clintonism, which we'll we will get get to uh, in our next segment. Mm-hmm. Um, what other impressions do you have of the film? I mean, for, for one, I mean this is a story of two consultants, but we haven't talked really much at all about George Stephanopoulos, a handsome bastard George <laughs> Stephanopoulos, who who was really a breakout star. From the, this movie, but you know when you watch it now, it's like well, he's much more taciturn. Not,
2: I, I think he embodies person. the youthful spirit of uh, the new Democratic Party at the time too. I, mean, yeah. I think he was sort of a, I mean, he's older, but a sort of Gen X adjacent political operative.
3: Oh, for sure.
0: Yeah, I mean he he spends a lot of the movie in Carville's shadow, I think, but he's clearly a very integral part of that campaign and in the movie i guess he's i don't want to say he's carvel 's straight man because it's like not the dynamic they have but they do form a sort of weird yin yang of energy and idealism i think yeah
3: yeah and he does have i think one of another one of my favorite moments of the film does have him when his assistant is just really really flirting with him do you remember this scene uh, uh when they've just won it's election night and she's asking him how he feels do you remember this oh, at all yeah. oh yeah i didn't i
0: didn't read that as flirting you did not but, oh my gosh but uh, it was, i don't uh, know I, I read it as playing to the cameras but i, I mean it could certainly yeah, have I, been I got flirting a little
3: bit, I, I, I could I got a little blushy blushy watching that scene so uh, <laughs> uh i just find that scene to be fascinating i even went and kind of looked into the the woman who was in, involved in that scene and she wrote a, she wrote a book about about being a, an assistant you know it's like oh a God. whole thing yeah it's a whole thing but uh, so that's the, the if, you, if the, you
0: were the type to write fan fiction you would write fan fiction about those two <laughs>
3: you really would it was it was like it's hot stuff i'm surprised that i'm surprised <laughs> that you all did not did not uh Because I was thinking, like, yeah, okay, this is George Stephanopoulos. This is all, this whole thing is paying off for him. Um, Because, yeah, he was very, uh, that was uh, a little uncomfortable. Uh, We don't know what's in the outtakes. Yeah, too hot for TV. How
0: do you feel?
3: It's still not, you know,
1: it's getting close. I mean, I was pretty shook up talking to him. What did he say? They were giddy. It's like it didn't, I mean, they're just like.
0: Are you, like, happy or are you scared or are you nothing or do you want to just, like, cry or what?
1: The crying was before. Maybe it'll be later, too. You no, know, it's just like
0: floating.
3: So there are a lot of you know famous clips in the film. I mean, what what were some of the more you know indelible moments for you?
0: Well, I have a, actually a Stephanopoulos scene that I was going to kind of bring up uh, in talking about him. So, hey, segue. Um, yeah. But that scene like toward the end where he gets a phone call about – something something that someone has, and he is trying to talk that person oh, right. out uh, out of it and it's i, I don 't know if it, i I missed it or if it 's like purposefully unclear of like what uh, who he 's talking yeah, yeah, but just the the maneuvering and the slickness uh, but also like sort of like panicked bumbling this uh, kind of combining into trying to not seem desperate and desperately talking this person out of going forward with whatever it is that they are threatening to go forward with. It sounds like
3: just – I think you just imagine it being another tabloid scandal uh, for for Clinton. But oh my gosh, you're right. That scene is incredible just like – you know you can do this, but here's what's going to happen to you: your career is going to be ruined. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that is like the, That's a great that's the moment.
0: moment where I get like a Carvel-esque energy out of him, yeah. where, where it's like, oh, this guy is he's packing heat. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, um, and, and you
3: can imagine him having those kinds of conversations behind closed doors that we mm-hmm. did, that we weren't witness to that were pretty critical to keeping um, the heat off of uh, uh, the candidate.
2: Yeah, I um, it's kind of mine's kind of the same scene, but for a different reason. Because the, the, what they're talking about there is is this rumor that Clinton has an illegitimate child. Oh, that's a, right, a black a little yeah. child, which came up in this last election too. The same. It's like the way these th- nothing ever disappears, you know. And and like these these scandals, uh, true or false, will just stay stick to people forever. Um, and perception becomes reality, and that's I think Carville understands that. I think they both everyone under, understands that on the campaign too, and it's as true now as it was then.
3: You know what? here 's a point i 've been wanting to make, you know watching this and then and then of course, experience the two thousand and sixteen election is I feel like everybody is all of us are just being held captive by this fight between hippies and reactionaries <laughs> in the baby boomer generation, and they are holding us holding the country hostage and we 're having to deal with that nonsense and Donald Trump to me was going to be just the last spasm. Of this conflict, it's the last ugly death spasm of, of reactionary baby boomers, and now he's president and, and could reshape the whole country. But it, it's so frustrating as a as a member of a younger generation, and, and Genevieve, much generation, a much younger generation.
0: generation. Uh, to, <laughs> so it, 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 much younger. So much younger. So much younger,
3: oh my gosh, <laughs> to have to be held hostage uh, by this fight that is kind of holding the whole country back, so that 's an aside, but I felt like I had to make it but when you 're talking about indelible moments the one the one for me is on election night when the results are coming in, and they 're getting all this in paper and there 's a very famous moment where a pollster named Mickey Cantor is getting very excited about all the numbers that are coming in, and you know it 's just one of those great candid behind the scenes sort of salty moments where he 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 says, "Look at Indiana, those people are." blank you know <laughs> and and uh there's been some cont- controversy and this came up you know this is this come up as late I'm looking doing an internet search on uh, on it now and this this came up as is late as you know May 2008 uh, uh, where they're trying to just, you know, parse that line. Is that what he actually said? Or was he saying people are blanking in the White House? Like, like are the, the White House people have got to be ups- upset about this. It's just the magic of documentary to kind of be there when people don't realize the camera's around, where the mi- mic is hot and you just get this great, you know, very colorful moment on on the record.
2: Yeah, per Baker it is those people must be blanking in the White House, mm-hmm.
3: uh, which makes a lot more
2: sense in context Uh than, yeah, maybe
3: than just
0: insulting an entire state. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's,
3: it's possible. I think I mean, because I think there there was no Raw, expectation. There was <laughs> no expectation that that they were going to win Indiana or do well in Indiana, as the uh, as I call Indiana, the home of the Hell Is Real billboard. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's a fun state, and good, our vice good. president. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> God. I I there's no way people have sex in that state. <laughs> that's that's just my I don't know how I don't know how they Hello re- to all our I, I don't know how they, I don't know how they reproduce but it's not that way. I'm just saying. He calls his he calls his wife mother. Did you know that the, Mike Pence calls his wife mother? And uh, okay, we're getting, we're getting so we're, we're way getting, off track. Uh, but
0: apologies <laughs> to Indiana. I know lovely people in Indiana. <laughs>
3: That's true. I, I I had a very nice time in Indiana. Not not having sex in it. But I, but I did I did have a nice time. I, I visited there. I visited there, and it seemed like a very. Uh, they have a wonderful
2: children's museum. They do. Uh, they have a very nice art museum in Indianapolis. Yeah. Um, okay. If you, if you like race cars, I understand there there's a race car facility there.
3: Yeah. So it, it takes the, the urges down. It tamps down the urges going to the, going to the race car. Uh, <laughs> oh so, All right. Let's steer Scott away from this. So. Okay. Any, any other thoughts on the war room?
0: I like that the waiter offers him Bush beer at the very end. <laughs> that is
3: really... That's that, <laughs>
0: just like, I spent a lot of time thinking like, okay, so is the bar like running a special on Bush beer because it's the election or is it just a coincidence? Does this waiter know who he's talking to? Like, I have so many questions about that moment when the waiter offered James Carville a Bush beer on ele- election night, night before election yeah. night. <laughs> I just think it, was,
3: I, I think it was just something that just happened and uh, and he had that... Yeah, that response got to have a Budweiser. I think Budweiser is what he ended up getting instead. But, yep. Uh, yep,
0: most American of beers.
3: <laughs> that's right. Now well, the end of the campaign. That's as good a place <laughs> to leave it as any. We'll be right back with some listener feedback on our last episode. Due to the Sundance Film Festival and various Chicago weather-related illnesses, it's been a few weeks since our last podcast on Jim Jarmusch's Stranger Than Paradise in Patterson. But we do want to alert you to an incredible email we received from one of our Hungarian listeners, Andras, who answered Tasha's request for a translation to Aunt Lottie's Hungarian rants. The email is too long to read here, but if you're a fan of Stranger Than Paradise and always wanted to know what Aunt Lottie was saying... We've posted it to our Facebook page. It's
0: great. I highly recommend It really going is. to check oh, it out. We were, Thank we could, you, Honest. We
3: could not have been more delighted to receive and, this.
0: And sorry if we mispronounced your name.
3: Oh, yeah. That's right. <laughs> the final indignity. <laughs> <laughs> You've done all this work for us, and we mangle your name. Um, as for uh, other feedback, Keith, why don't you get us started? Sure.
2: Here's a simple question for the group from listener Peter. Peter asks, can you actually watch a film and have fun without trying to dissect it?
3: Uh, the classic oh, oh, question. Oh, Peter. You, know,
2: you know what? I think Peter's being kind of trolly here, but I'm going to read this in such a way that, that, that it sounds helpful. I have a question: Can you actually watch a film and have fun without trying to dissect it? Being, you know, accomplished professionals who are very good at their job of <laughs> <at> analyzing films, <laughs> put a little spin on there yeah, for yeah. you.
0: Well, uh, I, I think trying to dissect a film is fun, which sure. may be why I do what I, I do. I to the a word
2: <laughs> "dissect," which is a dead thing. You know, you're yes. cutting up a dead thing on a, on a table, which is not not what we we're we are doing.
3: Yeah. It's alive, like like the wine in uh, Sideways, right? It's more, it's, it's
2: more of a more of a vivisection.
3: Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I would say this. This is my. This is the way I put it. Is that I have a strong emotional reaction or intellectual reaction or whatever to a movie and then criticism is about trying to account for that reaction and i would also say that the amount of experience that i've had uh watching films um has only made me more acutely attuned to the things that films do well and so if so if a film does hit uh, a certain grace note like you know if d.a pennebaker puts a puts a camera in the middle of Times Square to give us a subtle way of showing how Bill Clinton won the new york primary then that that 's really exciting and um and is something I react to, and I have fun, so much fun <laughs> keyword here I have fun
0: yeah, I have fun talking film with you guys
3: it's
2: it 's a pleasure for me too,
0: yeah,
2: uh, and with you guys and and you know. Getting a chance to write about film and, and just a chance to spend time in the world and, of film is, is uh, one of the greatest pleasures I have in my
0: life. And hearing from our lovely listeners and commenters, most of whom did not come to the concert just to boo us. Yes. <laughs> That's the first thing I thought of, too,
2: which was why they come to concert just to boo us. I didn't see.
3: I thought this was this question was asked in in a good, good spirit. Thank you for listening, Peter. Thank you. Uh, so this next email is a little longer. Uh, this is from Sam in Vancouver. Genevieve, uh, want to read it for us?
0: Sure. Sam writes, I wanted to chime in on a little detail, Genevieve, that's me, mentioned that gave me a different read on Patterson than most. I don't put much stock in fan theories, but one of the things I love about Jarmouche and Patterson in particular is how open to interpretation his characters can be while still having a strong personality. We don't need to know Patterson's life story to find him fascinating enough to spend a week with. About halfway through the film, the repetition of twins got me wondering, what if that picture of Patterson in a Marine uniform we catch a glimpse of early in the film isn't actually Patterson at all? Is there anything to say that Patterson doesn't or didn't have a complimentary Marine Corps yin to his mellow bus-driving Yang? A patter-twin, if you will. (laughs) Well done. Well done. Would such a detail explain why, say, Patterson seems so unnerved by twins, or why I detected more discomfort than humility in Patterson being labeled a hero for disarming Everett at the bar? in removing passengers from a bus that could have become a giant fireball? <laughs> Having only seen the movie once, it's entirely possible I missed a piece of dialogue or some other small detail that soundly disproves this interpretation. Ultimately, it doesn't really matter to me. Like William Carlos Williams's red wheelbarrow on which so much depends, the specific significance of an object like Patterson's picture isn't as thought-provoking as knowing it has a meaning to the one who appreciates it ps marvin is a good boy
3: wow there's a lot of counterintuitive thinking in here starting with marvin is a good boy <laughs> <laughs> well, all dogs are good boys <laughs> and girls
2: I, you know what's I, interesting to me is that marvin if you look carefully you'll find that his original owner was andy's mom from toy story
0: <laughs> <laughs> i really like this as as a fan theory goes though i think i mean I think the idea of Patterson himself as a veteran makes for a richer kind of mm-hmm. character sketch than him as the brother of a of a veteran. But I, I don't see anything in your reading that you know that I object to is impossible. And I, yeah, I don't know. What do what do you guys think?
3: I can't quite get on board with it. And he says it right here about Patterson disarming ever at the bar. That that spoke I think to yeah. someone who does have experience with guns and with combat but he and, didn't and,
0: recognize it as a fake gun <laughs> yeah
3: well that too i mean uh, and, and so I, I don't know i mean but I, I it's interesting that place where your mind can wander and um you know Jarmouche doesn't discourage that
0: yeah i do like in this letter how sam hones in on to jarmusch characters being open to interpretation while still having a strong personality Mm -hmm. i think that is a very good way of putting it and i think our our conversation on both of those movies kind of bears that out given the amount of information we are given on those characters and how much we were able to talk about them (laughs) with that limited amount of information so i think uh, you know this theory is just kind of another extension of that so i'm i'm glad sam pointed that out
3: I appreciate the imagination that went into that. So this last one, Keith, is from a reader who finally caught up with Moonlight, which we paired last year with Wong Kar-wai's In the Mood for Love. In that episode, we briefly touched on the memory-slash-dream sequence in which Chiron's mother yells something unintelligible but clearly upsetting at her son. This listener has an idea about those unheard words, which, fair warning, may be upsetting to some listeners to hear.
2: Michael Brown writes, I believe that when Naomi Harris is first seen yelling at Little, she does call him a, quote, goddamn faggot. Although you can't hear what she is screaming, that is what I lip read. The look on the boy's face is devastated and devastating. The next scene, the first thing he says is, what's a faggot? The second time we see the same scene via a grown black stream, she's a bit more subdued and we do hear what she is saying. It is not the same tirade as the first time. His dream isn't pleasant, but not as hateful as the first tirade. That makes sense to me. I, I, I think because we do get uh, now that I'm not quoting, I won't say it, but we do get the F word. He does bring up the F word um, without us having, heard, you know, seeing him hear it, uh, and it would make sense if it if it happened then. Although it could also make sense as a schoolyard taunt, but but yeah, I'll I'll I'll, I'll buy that.
0: I also buy it, and um, I think that it, it is powerful to not hear her actually say it, but hear his reaction to it and distress over it in the very next scene i think that is probably more powerful than if we had actually heard her screaming the words at him
3: and i think we did not come to that conclusion during that episode did Mm -hmm. we
0: no i don't think so even though
3: i think i felt that was true is there, is there audio record of me thinking like thinking this? <laughs> sure. And then sure you Scott. all say, yeah. no, Scott, forget it. He, she doesn't no. say that at all. That's exactly as it happened. That's Memory how I remember it. it.
2: Memory can be very fluid, as, as evidenced in the film Moonlight and, uh, <laughs> and, our, and the podcast around it.
3: <laughs> so as always, we appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response on a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. And that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In the second half, we'll bring in Wiener and talk about how the campaign of another flawed, charismatic, democratic candidate did not lead anyone to the promised land. Look for that later this week, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we'll be giggling like 10-year-olds over our clever wiener puns and double entendres.